Good afternoon. Uh, today's Bible reading is from the book of Jonah, chapter 3. Uh, the book of Jonah is in the Old Testament, uh, after the book of Obadiah, and before the book of Micah. Okay. Uh, so Jonah, chapter 3, uh, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from the evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Now, today's second reading is from the book of Matthew. That's in the New Testament. Uh, so while you're turning there, uh, let me just briefly recap. Uh, the Gospel of Matthew tells us about God's eternal kingdom and especially shows Jesus to be the king. Uh, the early chapters recount Jesus' birth and then moves on to the beginning of his ministry where he teaches with great authority and displays great miraculous signs of healing, casting out demons and even calming a great storm. Uh, so we'll pick it up from Matthew chapter 12, uh, verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the, man be, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. This is the word of God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this uh, wonderful book of Jonah, a book that has, in many ways, a, a really familiar ring to it, and yet it has also um, given us some pretty big surprises as we come to see just how merciful and gracious you are, and how to see that Jonah isn't just someone that we look down on as someone who seems like a real failure, uh, but as a mirror uh, who shows up how we too are those who run away from you, and we too are those who are... Uh, slow to, to turn to you in repentance. 
And we are those who are filled also with self-righteousness and superiority. Um, And we thank you that just as you showed Jonah such grace and mercy, so you show us grace and mercy also. We pray as we continue to look into this uh, next chapter and see the astounding mercy uh, displayed to Nineveh, that you will help us to truly marvel at the, the, the character of mercy and grace that you have and the way you, that you show it. We pray that you might uh, help us to see how this might impact our lives today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, let me ask you, <clears throat> what has your experience in evangelism been like so far in your life? Right? What's your experience of evangelism been like in your life so far? Maybe some of you are here today on the receiving end uh, of people's evangelistic efforts. You know, Christians who are trying to share the gospel with you, or maybe they just dragged you along to church and you're not quite sure why they've asked you to come along, uh, but they're trying to evangelize you. And so you've had some experience of evangelism from that perspective. Others of us are Christians, and we've been wanting to, and maybe even trying pretty hard to try to evangelize to, the, to our family and to our friends and classmates and colleagues. And I wonder, has it been a good experience for you? Right? Has it been easy to hear people try and share the gospel with you? Uh, has it been easy speaking to others about, about Jesus and about the gospel? Now, if I were to do a, a, a real poll now, I would imagine that the answers I would get would be that many of us find it hard. <clears throat> it, certainly, it certainly isn't easy to hear about this gospel thing, and it's certainly hard to try to share it with other people because people already have their own beliefs, don't they? They already have their own religion. Uh, they've already had it since they were born, as they, 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 they formed their own thoughts. They, they, they've already, already had their own uh, beliefs about how life works and what religion to follow. The people that we speak to are often very self-sufficient. Uh, they're, they're going about life seemingly anyway in a very successful way, right? They, they, they're, they're all fine, thank you very much. I don't need anything else new in my life. The message of the gospel that we preach, you are a sinner under God's judgment, in need of saving. Jesus is the only way, the only Savior. Well, that sounds deeply offensive. It's so exclusive. The message sounds offensive. And, and frankly, the message sounds unbelievable, isn't it? In this rational world, where is the proof? Right? These are fantastical things that you're telling me about, right? They are frankly unbelievable, lacking rationality and evidence. Now, for us as Christians, we go into evangelism thinking in the back of our minds that really, it isn't really going to work, right? That there's more fear uh, than there is hope. Some of us might even be shocked when we get a positive response, let alone someone going all the way and putting their trust in their life completely in Jesus. That can surprise us big time, can't it? <clears throat> now, whether you're a Christian here today or whether you're here seeking and checking out Christianity, Jonah has something to say to all of us. You see, in our passage today, we see that God shows astounding mercy to save all kinds of people, from the self-righteous people, righteous people like Jonah that we saw last week, all the way to the, to the most wicked and, and, and cruel people like the Ninevites that we see in this passage today. God shows astounding mercy, but only to those who believe and repent. God shows astounding mercy, but only to those who respond with faith and repentance. Now, we come out of Jonah 2, uh, seeing God's grace and mercy poured out on a very undeserving prophet. That's what we saw the last two weeks. We saw Jonah, the prophet of God, had flatly disobeyed God uh, and turned in the opposite direction and literally ran away from God. And it's only after being thrown into a raging sea on the brink of death, having been swallowed up by a fish, 
that he called out to God, all right, in faith, in prayer. And even then, as we saw last week, even this calling out to God was, wasn't with any kind of confession, with, with no sorry, no apology, no, no remorse. In fact, he presumed on God's mercy, and, and his prayer kind of stank of self-righteousness and superiority. Yet we saw last week that God, in his astounding mercy, saves Jonah. The, uh, the Lord God responds to his cry of faith as flawed uh, and as faulty as it was. And I know many of us were struck by that last week, and, and Melsa uh, uh, was happy to share at the back of the bulletin, you can read later on, about her reflections uh, on, on seeing God's mercy towards Jonah. So I'll read that later on, okay? Sorry I drew your attention. Bad, bad, bad preacher thing to do. Anyway, if I could hear... When you compare, uh, when you get to chapter 3, we see God giving Jonah a second chance, right? He's not just saved back into life, into the land of the living. We see that he's given a second opportunity to be God's prophet, another chance to have the privilege of being God's messenger. Now, if you, if you compare chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, back to chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, it's like a total do-over, isn't it? It's like a restart. It's almost word for word the same in these th- three verses at the beginning and here in, verse, in chapter 3. Uh, given a second time, right? The word of the Lord came to Jonah. Chapter 1, verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1. And the word that he gave to Jonah was, Arise, right? go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. The, the same message. And Jonah arose. Both times he rose. But in chapter 1, he rose to flee, didn't he? But this time in chapter 3, he rose and he went to Nineveh. Now, what's the difference between the first time when he rose at the call of God and fled versus the second time where he rose and went in obedience. Well, what's different is that Jonah experienced salvation, didn't he? He experienced the grace and mercy of God uh, as he fled and as he, in a way, died and as he was saved. You see, what drives evangelism isn't obligation. It isn't duty. It isn't because God said so, so I must do. What drives evangelism is experiencing salvation. What drives evangelism, what drives our desire to want to tell other people about Jesus is that we first experience salvation. So the question is, have we experienced salvation in a way which makes us want to share this salvation with other people? For Jonah, he sets off to Nineveh, that great city, right? The exceedingly great city. We're told this twice. It's like a repetition to emphasize just how great the city is. Now, if you look in context, the first mention of its greatness or the first reason why it's a great city is because of its geographical size. Right? We're told that it's a three-day walk in its breadth. Now, for a city in its time, this makes it one of the biggest cities of its time. Now, three days' walk, uh, if you're a normal person back in those days, probably be around 100 kilometers, right? give or take. It's a pretty big city. Even I mean, today, it would be a pretty big city. I think Brisbane's about 100 kilometers wide. But this has been the ancient days. It was huge as a city. But it was also great in its population size. Have a look at chapter 4, verse 11. We're told that there was more than 120 million, no, sorry, 120,000 people. It sounds small, right? It's smaller than Gold Coast, right? But in those days, 120,000 citizens of a city was a big city. But it was also great in its influence. Nineveh was the capital city of the nation called Assyria. Now, if you know any of your history, you know that Assyria, the Assyrian Empire was one of the great uh, empires of history before the time of the Babylonians, right, before the time of the Persian Medes and before the Greeks. The Assyrians were the superpower of its time. Now, 
Nineveh and Assyria at this time was about 50 years before its peak, right? 50 years before its peak power. So it wasn't quite there yet, but it was on the rise, wasn't it? It was on the up and the up. Its influence was growing and growing in this world. And finally, Nineveh is greatly renowned for its great brutality and cruelty. If you were here two weeks ago, you would have heard Steve give a pretty long quote about the description of these Assyrian people back in those days, around the 7800 BC kind of time. They were a truly wicked and, and, and cruel and brutal people. They were warmongers and torturers. And their way of life was called out by prophets of God in many places about how terrible these people were. Even by, by secular standards, they were wicked. Now it is to this exceedingly great city, great in geographical size, great in population, great in influence, and great in wickedness, that God sends Jonah to, to call against it. So Jonah goes and walks one day into this great city. So it's about halfway in, right? If you walk one day into a three-day wide city, it's about, one, it's about in the center, roughly. And he calls out to the city We're using five words. Now, in our English Bibles, it's nine, I think. In the Chinese Bible, it's 12. But in the Hebrew, it's five words. Literally, it says, Yet 40 days Nineveh overturned. Right? Yet 40 days Nineveh overturned. Mic drop. Walk off stage. Right? Shortest sermon ever. Anyone ever wish that Steve and I would preach five-word sermons? I know none of you will because uh, you like hearing us preach more than that. Uh, but five words is really a terrible sermon, isn't it? What, what kind of message is this, Jonah? It's so short, but, but not only that, it's offensive, isn't it? This is a message of judgment. Now, we don't like hearing messages of judgment. That's kind of hateful. That's kind of offensive. It's not loving. And Jonah doesn't seem to even bother to explain why. And he doesn't seem to offer any solutions. Right? It's just judgment, five words, and out of there. Where is the love? I want you to think carefully about this message that he preached. It's not really proclaiming judgment, is it? It's warning of impending judgment. It's not proclaiming judgment. It's warning of impending judgment that is to come. Sudden judgment is terrible news. Impending judgment is good news. Let me explain, right? Now, why don't you imagine that I walk into my kid's bedroom, right? And let me tell you, my kid's bedroom, at any moment of any day, you will see that it's a mess, okay? I don't know why, what happens. I make them clean up, and then like, within minutes, it's like someone came in and decided to you know, let a bull run loose in the room. Now, can you imagine if I walk into the room and I said, now that's it, you are now one month without screen time, right? And one month, you'll not see your friends, okay? Right there, there, there. No, no chances, right? No care is given. Right there and then, immediate judgment. That's bad, right? Or imagine you, 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 you go to the doctors uh, for a, a regular checkup, and then suddenly the doctor says, oh, by the way, you've got stage four cancer, and you've got 10 seconds to live. Okay, unlikely. But more likely is this, isn't it? You're a 20-something, 30-something-year-old man or woman, and you're healthy, you're fit, you're successful. And then suddenly, just like that, you get a heart attack or a stroke. No judgment, no, no warning. This disaster. That's terrible news, isn't it? That, that is terrible, terrible news. But, but if there is warning of, of a disaster there is to come, that not that good news? 40 days... 
Nineveh overturned. It gives you a chance to respond, to do something, maybe to even avert the disaster, the judgment. You see, to give warning is an act of grace and mercy. To warn of impending danger is loving. And so you see a sign like this. It, it looks offensive. It looks scary. There's a skull there, for goodness sakes. But it's to, it's to warn you to stay away or you will die. Australia has this uh, advertising policy for cigarettes. You have to put these pictures, right, on the, on the cartons of your cigarette, uh, um, you know, packets. That's offensive. That's what your lung will look like, right? You'll have lung cancer. It is what you, you'll be. You'll have a, a heart surgery because you'll have clogged arteries. And that's offensive, isn't it, to tell people that they're going to suffer and maybe even die from smoking? But it's a warning to keep us safe. It's a warning to keep us safe. You know, when the doctor tells you to change your diet, exercise, stop smoking, they're doing it because they care for you to remain healthy and safe. Now, warnings, they can look terrible, they can sound offensive, but they are for our good and they are for our benefit. That's what love is, isn't it? To show love to someone is to, to seek the good of the other. And if you know that disaster is about to happen and you don't tell someone, how is that loving? But if you do tell someone of impending disaster... That is an act of mercy. That's an act of love. Sudden judgment with no warning is terrible news. But warning of impending judgment is good news. It is merciful and loving. And the Lord God, through the prophet Jonah, gives the good news to Nineveh. Yet 40 days, you will be overturned. Now, we should read on. Nothing really prepares us for the stunning response of the Ninevites. Right, have a look at verse 5. I'm going to read from verse 5 to verse 9. And this describes the response of the Ninevites to this five-word message of impending judgment. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Now really, when you think about it, there is no reason that we can think of for why they would believe and respond to Jonah's message. I mean, this is a random guy who smells rather fishy, right, coming to them. Thank you. Thanks for the laughs. <laughs> the people of this great city already have their own gods, their own religions, their own beliefs. If you know your history, the Assyrians have a full load of their own beliefs and gods and worship. These people are self-sufficient, powerful, and proud. People on the rise in the world history stage. The message that they've just heard is offensive. And it's downright unbelievable. Like, where is the evidence? Like, what are you talking about being judged? Where is the evidence of anything going to be happening to us? Where is the rationale? Just like some of us here, and just like for many people we try to evangelize to, there is no reason for them to want to receive this message. Yet, 
the people of Nineveh believed God. That's amazing, isn't it? They heard the words of Jonah, but they understood them as the words of God. You read it, right, in the the passage, verse 5. They believed Jonah. No, they didn't. They believed God. They saw it as a message from God somehow. But it doesn't end in just belief. The belief of the message of judgment was met with repentance. Now, in the next few verses here, this, this passage gives us one of the best pictures, I think, of what it means to be repentant, what it means to have a heartfelt, genuine repentance towards God. You see, having believed God's word that judgment is coming, they, in effect, have a change in mind, isn't it? They start to believe and agree that they are sinners in need of judge, in need of, uh, who will be judged for their sin. And having recognized that they're sinners, they don't just know in their heads, but they grieve, they sorrow, they, they, they have sorrow in it, right? They, they, they express their grief in the way that they did in, back in those days. They, they took off their normal clothes and put on the sackcloth, right? The, the itchiest you know, material known to man, right? Is what you put your potatoes in, right? And they'll sack things. And then they, they, they stopped eating, they, they, they fasted. These were acts of self-deprivation, kind of self-punishment, a declaration of their unworthiness, of their poverty of spirit towards God a way to kind of express physically a kind of heart-rending sorrow and grief over their state. And look at who responded. From the greatest to the least, from those high up in the social, political chain, all the way down to the people right at the bottom, the whole lot of them responded this way. And even the king, when he heard the five-word message of judgment, when it came up finally into his royal courts, he responded too. The king, in the very instant that he heard it, seems to not have paused in any way, but he, he got up, he, he took off his royal robes and put on the sackcloth himself, and then he did the next thing that the people didn't do, which was that he created ash, he put it on the floor, and then he sat in it. Right? Another picture of kind of wallowing in being in the, in the most humble, contrite, depressed way possible. Right? The humility of the king is astounding, isn't it? sitting there on probably his golden throne in, in these royal robes, having heard about the coming judgment, takes off the robes, put on the sackcloth, and sits on the floor in the ashes. It's an amazing response. And then the king, he issues a stunning proclamation to the people. And it's a little bit comical, really, this uh, proclamation. It's so earnest, isn't it? He's so keen for the people to respond. He tells them not just to fast, but to thirst, and not just the, the people, but the animals as well. He tells the people uh, to put on the sackcloth, but not just the people, the animals too. And, and, and the kids, you know, Bibles, they love this story, isn't it? Because they get to draw all these cows and all these chickens wearing sackcloth, right, looking very hungry. It's, it's kind of a bit of a comical picture, right, taking it to the next level of wanting to express repentance. But of course, it's also kind of comical because the people are already doing that. From the greatest to the least, they'd already all expressed their repentance before the king even said to do so. They responded by their own convictions, from the greatest to the least of them. But there's more. Have a look at the end of verse 8. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. The king of Nineveh calls for a change of life. Repentance isn't just a matter of sorrow for sin, it's also a change of life. And it's exactly what the king calls, calls his people to do. The Assyrian way of life, as we know, is evil and cruel, and the king says, no more. Don't live that way anymore. We've heard the message from, from, from God, so let's turn and change in the way that we live. 
And so the picture, this, this amazing picture of repentance is now complete. Their minds have been turned to believe in what God says. Their hearts have been turned to see sin to be brought low and to mourn in great humility. Their lives have been turned to no more live in evil and violence like they used to. What was the message? Yet 40 days, Nineveh will be overturned. Who knew that this is how they would turn? Now, overturn is a play on words, right? Overturn could mean destroyed, overthrown. But here we realize that the overturning here is the turning over of their lives towards God. Now, surely, with such belief and with such genuine repentance, God will have to save them, right? Surely they've earned this. They deserve for God to, to not judge them anymore. Now, this is where we get to one of the, my favorite standout verses in the book of Jonah, and possibly one of my top 15, 20 verses in the entire Bible. It's kind of a strange verse to be favorite, but verse 9, have a look. Who knows? This is what the king says, right? Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. We've believed, we've repented, but who knows? God may, God may not turn from the judgment that he has proclaimed. You hear that? There's, there's no presumption here at all. It's the total opposite of Jonah in the previous chapter in his prayer, full of presumption. It's like God owed him salvation. But for the king, he's like, we've done all these things, but who knows? God may or God may not. You see, he seems to get it, isn't he? He's, he's one of my heroes, really, in the Bible, isn't he? This, this king of Nineveh. He gets it. That he is an undeserving sinner. And if you are an undeserving sinner, then you don't expect, you don't presume for mercy. The guilty expect to be punished. That is justice. No prisoner in jail for crimes they've committed presumes to be let out before they serve their time. No one who is a real and convicted murderer on death row expects to be shown mercy and a stay from execution. You just don't expect those things, but you can hope for it. You can hope for mercy, can't you? It is unexpected, but it is so gloriously good if the one who has the power to show mercy actually shows it. Because you never expected it, you never presumed it, and you receive it with amazing joy that you've got mercy that you do not deserve. I love this king. His understanding and his humility, it really stuns me. It should stun all of us, I think. Now, if this were a TV series, the episode, I think, would end at verse 9. You know, because how TV series, they always leave it as a cliffhanger, isn't it? Right? Who knows? Maybe. And then we're like waiting. Come back next week, right, to see what happens to the king and to the people of Nineveh. But happily and kind of sadly, we do know what happens next, right? That God does withhold his judgment. He relents from bringing disaster and he chooses mercy. Now, I kind of do wish we actually would stop the sermon at verse 9 this week and leave verse 10 uh, to next week. Because uh, I think we will appreciate more, having been left hanging, that this mercy from God is not something we should expect. I think it would hit us more in the face and more in the heart if we realize that God, when he shows astounding mercy, really is astounding and undeserved. But it does come 
and I hope for people who know we need God's mercy as well, and that we're not judging Nineveh for their lifestyle, would actually feel relief and joy for them. And we're reminded once again what the Lord God of heaven is like. We're reminded that our creator, the ruler and judge, the holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty of justice is also the God who is merciful and gracious. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? It's hard to put those things together in our heads sometimes. God is perfect and pure and righteous and just. That's why he pronounces judgment, yet he is also gracious and merciful. And that is the picture of God that we keep being shown in, in, the, in the Old Testament and the New. Right from the beginning, right? I mean, this verses from, from Exodus 34, when God reveals himself personally as Yahweh, God of Israel, says this, right? The Lord passed before Moses and, and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. See that? His justice, yet his mercy and grace kind of coming together. We see another picture of God in Ezekiel when he proclaims, right, uh, God's word. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God? And not rather he should turn from his way and live. A few verses later, he says to, to the people who are, who, are, who are sinful, he says, for I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. God doesn't want to judge as, as, as the judge. He will, but he doesn't want to because he wants people to live. And how do they live? They turn, they believe, and they repent. Now, God's mercy on the wicked and violent Ninevites is truly astounding. Undeserved as though they, were, though they were, God yet poured out his mercy on them. Now, we need to be very clear here, don't we? Believing and repenting doesn't earn God's mercy. We've got to be really clear on that. No more than being uh, the best inmate in jail earns you a pardon. It doesn't work like that. But because we know God's character, we know that he desires to save and to show grace and mercy, then when you do respond with belief and repentance, God will show you mercy. Does that make sense? You don't deserve it, but we can have the confidence that God will show it. We don't presume it, but we can rejoice that He gives it. Not because of who we are and what we deserve, but because of God's character, a God gracious and merciful, pouring out His steadfast love to thousands, forgiving iniquities and sins and transgressions, for generations, for thousands and thousands of people. I think it's a good time really just to pause and, and give thanks to God. I let that reality of who God is kind of sink in for us and give thanks that mercy and grace are the very core, the very heart of God's character. So that's Jonah 3. That's the passage. And, and, and we now need to take the crucial step of moving forward into the New Testament to properly understand how all of this applies to us. Over the last couple of weeks, we've kind of uh, made some uh, assumptions and some uh, not very clear connections between Jonah and the New Testament. But today, I want to make it really clear. Because as Christians, we take very seriously that the Old Testament is there to point us to Jesus. Uh, it's one of the core values of SLE Church, that we see the whole of Scripture understood in the light of Christ. Not because we are imposing this on the, on the Bible, but because Jesus himself tells us that the Old Testament points to him. 
right? The Bible itself tells us that the New Testament is there to tell us about Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection, and what that means. And so we take the Bible seriously that the Old Testament needs to be understood in light of Christ. Especially with Jonah, in chapter 2 and 3 of Jonah, Jesus explicitly connects and references what Jonah is like and what he goes through and what he does to what he, Jesus, himself is like and what he is doing. Okay, we see this in Matthew 12. So I'll get you to open up to Matthew 12, verse 38 to 41. Uh, I, won't get you, I won't read out the verses. I'll just have you put in front of you as a reference point as I explain the two references that Jesus makes back into Jonah 2 and 3 to explain uh, what he is doing, what Jesus is doing in the first century. Okay, so Jonah is like 800 years BC. Jesus about, you know, 20, about 30 AD. And Jesus is referencing Jonah. Okay, so let, let's have a look. All right, in this place, you heard Alan give us the context before. The Jewish leaders, they've seen all these signs from Jesus showing his kingdom and his kingship, and here they're asking for yet another sign, right? Show us another sign, Jesus, right? Tell us who you really are. You can tell they are not asking with good intentions. They've already seen so much in the previous few chapters, and we're told the reason that they can't see and that they won't believe is because they're evil and they're hard-hearted. And so Jesus replies... No more signs, except one more, right? No more of all these other signs I've been doing, but just one more, and that's the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he explains that the sign of the prophet Jonah is three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so also I will be three days and three nights in the, in the grave. Okay? Um, Jonah went through a kind of a death event and then a resurrection, right? Three days and three nights, pretty much in a tomb, in a fish, and then raised so that he would preach the message of judgment and the, and the hope for, maybe not by Jonah, but the God's hope for response of repentance. So we've got death in the fish, resurrection event, judgment preaching, repentance. And Jesus is saying, I'm saying, I will go through this death experience. The resurrection will authenticate, prove that my message of preaching judgment, which he's been doing up to this point, which you'll do up to here, and the repentance that I'm calling for is what I'm here about. I'm like Jonah in wanting to go through this resurrection event to preach judgment so that people will respond. Okay, this is what Jesus is doing, right? He's connecting back to Jonah and this kind of process of what's happening in Jesus' life. That's like Jonah's. Now, this is the first important point, right? The sign of resurrection, it drives the message of judgment and repentance. Okay? The resurrection, Jonah and the fish, Jesus in the tomb, drives the message of judgment and the call to repentance. Does that make sense? Following me? So the question is, what is the connection? Why is there this need for a resurrection event before this judgment preaching and response? What's the connection between judgment and, sorry, resurrection and judgment? Think about it for a second. What's the connection between resurrection and judgment? Now, if I ask you, if there is no resurrection, then this life is all that there is, isn't it? When we die and we get buried, we're just there for fertilizer, for the flowers that will grow on top of our bodies. That's all we are. But the Bible's worldview is that that's not what happens to every single person. The Bible's worldview is that every single person in all of history will be raised on that last day, back to life, to appear before the judgment throne of God, and His judgment verdict will determine our eternal futures. So who is correct? 
Are we just fertilizer for the flowers that themselves will die? Or will we all be raised to life to face judgment and eternity? That is the point here, isn't it? And Jesus is saying, well, Jonah is like, it's appointed to me that I will raise, be raised to life and, and, and prove and show that judgment is real. That there is life after death. There is an accounting to our Father who made us, who is our judge. And his son, Jesus, who is now God's judge as well. And then an eternity that is to follow. No resurrection means this life is all that there is. But if there is a resurrection, then there is judgment and eternal life to come. So that's the first point that Jesus is trying to make. Is there a resurrection? Second one is response. In the time of Jonah, the Ninevites responded to Jonah's warning of judgment with repentance. Right? We've heard that. Beautiful story, Jonah 3. But in Jesus' time, they did not, which makes their response even more unfigurable. See the point that's being made in these verses? Like Jesus is far greater than Jonah. As a man, Jesus was the perfect, obedient man. Jonah is just this terrible failure of a man. As a prophet, Jesus came with the miraculous signs proving that he was God's divine prophet and, and, and the Son of God as the messenger himself. As a prophet, Jesus preached far more than the five words that, that, that we're told that Jonah spoke. And then the resurrection of Jesus is far greater than Jonah's, wasn't it? Jonah didn't really die, and then after that he lived, and then he died again. But for Jesus, he really died, and he really rose to, to, from the dead, and he defeats death once and for all. The Ninevites responded to the far lesser prophet in Jonah, but the Israelites of Jesus' day did not respond to the far greater prophet in Jesus. And even after the resurrection, after so many people who had witnessed his resurrection and people preached about Jesus, people who could verify whether they saw Jesus or not, they refused to believe and to repent. And so Jesus says that their culpability, their blameworthiness, their condemnation is just. And he says that it will be like the Ninevites who did repent will be standing in the jury in God's court and they will point their finger and they would add their judgment and condemnation on the people of Israel in Jesus' time. We live 2,000 years after the generation of that unrepentant Israelites in Jesus' time. God has mercifully given us an incredible amount of time, far more than 40 years, to respond to believe in the gospel, to believe that we are sinners in need of saving, to believe that Jesus Christ is God's Son, the only Savior. God has mercifully given His message of judgment and salvation in the Bible in full, far more than the five words of the prophet Jonah. We have the testament of the entire Bible, the message in full, in our hands, in our, in our phones, anywhere to be accessed in this world with an internet connection. The full message of who God is, who we are, our need for salvation, and Jesus as the only Savior. God has mercifully given this world the historical reality of Jesus. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus in a real time, in a real place, giving us a real hope. The Ninevites could have said, we didn't know much, but we can't say that. Jesus is a man of history. He really did live and die and rose again. You can check that out for yourself. There is evidence to look at. And if his resurrection is real, then what do we say? Judgment is real. And it is coming. 
If Jesus did really rise from the dead, then judgment day is coming and it is terrifying. The most important question that you can ever ask in this life is, did Jesus rise from the dead? Because if he did, then judgment is coming and it is terrifying. Now, if you're not a believer here this morning, this afternoon, can I ask you to consider this merciful and loving message of impending judgment? Maybe up to this point, you've always kind of disliked or hated your friend bringing up any idea that you'll be judged. But can I just encourage you that they probably were being very caring and loving towards you. They did not like talking about judgment, but then they care for you and they want you to be safe. Which is why they, they fumbled around trying to tell you about your sin and God's judgment. Not because they were hating on you, but because, if I use the terrible American expression, they were loving on you, right? They weren't hating on you, they were loving on you. See, judgment is coming, but it's not here yet. To know that certain judgment is coming means you can get ready, you can get prepared. Today, now is the time to respond to God's mercy and grace. Now is the time to believe and, and repent like the Ninevites did. To believe in Jesus as God's Son, your King, the only Savior. To grieve your sin. To humbly ask for mercy. To turn your life around and live no more in the way you used to for yourself or for the world or for your pleasures, but to live for God and His good way. To know that when you call out and ask for mercy, because of who God is, He will give it to you. Not because you deserve it, but because He's merciful. Now, if you're unbelieved here this morning and you do want to talk more about that, or if you do want to put your trust and repent in Jesus, please speak to me or Steve or anyone else who brought you here. We'd love to be able to talk through more about what it means to become a Christian today. Now, for the believers here this morning, well, God's, uh, I keep saying morning, afternoon. For, for believers here this afternoon, God's astounding mercy to Jonah and Nineveh should spur us on in our evangelism. Right? It should spur us on in our evangelism. We, we might feel awkward, Right, we might feel a little bit fishy right, and weird as we, we preach. And, and people, yes, they are with their own beliefs. And they do have their own religion up to this point. And yes, the people that we speak to generally are very successful and going well in life, very self-sufficient. And yes, the message can sound offensive and exclusive. And frankly, at times, it may seem unbelievable and not very rational, although I think... It is much more believable and rational than we make it out to be. All those things may be true, but God is astoundingly merciful. But God is working in us, through us, in people to bring about faith and repentance. We are kind of living examples of that if we are believers. We did not deserve it, but we have received God's mercy. And so we keep preaching the reality of sin and judgment. We preach it lovingly as we can, but we preach the message that judgment is coming. And we proclaim the wonderful grace and mercy that is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because who knows? Who knows? God may grant faith and repentance to the people that we share the gospel with. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, 
We thank you for your astounding mercy that we see all through scriptures and especially in the way that you saved Nineveh. We thank you that in this chapter we see such mercy shown to both people like Jonah, the self-righteous, who are religious and seemingly good, all the way to those who are clearly in human sight at least, evil and wicked and cruel. And everyone in between, we are all rebels, we're all sinners, we've all turned away from you in some way, shape or form, and yet your mercy is available to all because that is part of the core of your character that you so graciously revealed to us. We thank you too that in this chapter we see a beautiful picture of faith and repentance. And we pray for that faith and repentance for ourselves. For those of us who are already believers, that we would check to see that our belief in you really is genuine, that our repentance really is heartfelt as we grieve our sin and as we change our lives, as we continue to humble ourselves before your mercy. But I pray too for faith and repentance for those who have yet to do that for the first time. I pray that you'll help all of us to have eyes to see our need for salvation and to see the grace and mercy you offer us through your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray too for all of us who are believers that indeed we will be motivated by our own salvation, our own experience of your grace and mercy to want to share the gospel with others. Help us see that when we do warn people of judgment that is to come, we do so because we want to be loving. We want people to be safe. And so please keep Help us to keep pressing on in being great evangelists that can bring salvation to many. This we pray in his name.